Jeremiah chapter 8. I don't know how long. I really want to move through chapter 10 because it's all one sermon. I know that's a bit of stretch for us to actually cover that much material, but we'll see. Uh, but maybe I'll, I don't know, maybe I'll give you enough of a crumb trail to where you can follow along. Um, before we pray, if you'll notice with me, 8-4 starts the poetry section. And we'll probably spend most of our time there. Uh, it talks about how Israel rebelled against the Word of God, and it concludes with judgment. If you'll notice chapter 9, if you have subtitles, we'll spend less time in chapter 9. That's the lament. And during the lament, the, the difficult thing is to figure out who's talking. You got to figure out, is Jeremiah talking? Is God talking? When Jeremiah speaks, who's he talking for himself or the nation? Is he being sarcastic? So nine is all about a lament to where he actually hires or he tells the nation to hire mourners. But 23, 24, 25, and 26, you can go ahead and circle that. The conclusion of chapter nine is very important. In fact, Paul will use that in 1 Corinthians. 10 is important for us to consider because it's about idolatry. And he gives several, not just a few, not several, a few examples of idolatry. And so we're, we have to sit and process that and determine where our idolatry lies. Okay, so 10 is really important too. 10 will leave you scratching your head. I can, I can give you enough certainly to consider, but you know, if you accuse the church today of idolatry, you'd be quickly dismissed because most people think of idolatry as, you know, Buddha or worshiping some form of idol. But when you look at the foundational elements of idolatry for the nation of Israel, you go, wait a minute, that's a lot like our culture. We may not have the doll to carry around or the statue or the idol to carry around, but the principles applied to that idol are consistent with our culture. So you have to watch for that. What's really cool as we go back to eight is the questions. That's why I like eight the best because he asks a lot of questions. The prophet, as he's preaching, asks the nation questions. And so you have to mull over the questions. And so if we don't make it through all of these questions uh, or all of it tonight, just be sure you work back through eight. Ask yourself the questions and work through those questions. Okay. Before we get in there, let's... Let's pray. Uh, Caleb, would you open us in prayer, please, sir? Tyler, are you recording? Okay, I thought you were. I was asking for pages' sake. I was asking for pages' sake. All right, if you'll notice verse 4, this is where he begins. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord. So God is telling Jeremiah exactly what to say. And the first thing that he wants Jeremiah to do is ask them a question. And the question is, do men fall and not get up again? So it's a really simple question. Uh, has a practical application, and you need to think about it for a second. Do we walk from here to our car, trip, and fall on the ground and not get up? That would be an absolutely ridiculous situation. In fact, the only people that you can think about who fall and don't get up are toddlers. In fact, three-year-olds, right? They fall, they lay there, they pitch a fit, and we have to go about the business of picking them up, right? So it's absolutely an absurd question. And so the Lord sets him up with an absolute absurdity. No adult, no mature person would ever fall down on the ground and just lay there in the embarrassment and the shame, right? So he starts there and then he asks the second question, does one turn away and not repent? 
Why then has this people Jerusalem, so we know specifically who he's talking about, the heart of his people, right? If those absurdities are not true, then why in the world has this people Jerusalem turned away in continual apostasy? How in the world have they continually gone in the wrong direction? These are my people who have all the privileges, right? They have all the prophets, they have the temple, they have the word. They have all these wonderful things, right? They have the law of God. But they have continued down the path of rebellion without once ever considering that they need to pick themselves up. They need to turn around in their way and come back. Why would they do that? Now, here's, here's the problem with depravity. And it, it may be the worst problem with depravity. Look at the next statement. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. They believe the lie. They're absolutely convinced that they're not going the wrong way. They're absolutely convinced that they have not fallen down and there's nothing to turn back to. So how in the world, because you and I look at this and it's, I mean, it's clearly evident of the accusations that the prophet brings against the nation. It's clearly evident that they're in the wrong. I mean, you have the prophet speaking. You have the judgment coming from the north. There's no way that you could justify your position as being right or righteous. But yet they continue to hold to the law. So here comes the first question to us. What are the areas in our life that we could study, the principles that we can understand from the Old Testament prophets, and for us to realize we need to turn around. We need to pick ourselves up. We need to return to the Lord rather than constantly justifying our actions and justifying what we think is, is right and not being humble and willing to hear in turn. And so there's a number of things that you and I could talk about, right? The key to that, overcoming that terrible state that they're in, is humility. You have to be willing to be called to an account by the Word of God. You even have to be willing to be called to an account by accusations made against you that you think are totally erroneous, you still have to be willing to take those accusations to the Lord and go, Lord, you're sovereign. They accused me of this. I don't think I'm like that. I don't think I do that. But nonetheless, in the sovereignty of God, you allowed someone to say that to me. And so I want to be humble enough to ask you, if I'm like that, then give me ears to hear and a heart to submit and turn and not be like that. Again, that's the worst part of depravity. You're too blind at what you're doing. You see what everybody else is doing, but you never look at yourself. You justify. You always have a reason for what you're doing that you think is right. Don't be st stubborn hearted in that way because for Jeremiah to say this, and the people go, no, we're just, we're going to hold to the lie. But they didn't even, they didn't have that kind of wisdom. They didn't realize it was a lie. They just hear this prophet saying, thus says the Lord, why would you fall down and not pick yourself up? And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Why do you go into apostasy and not turn from the Lord? How are we going into apostasy? What are you talking about? Do you not realize you're the only one calling us to repentance? All these other guys that we're about to see are preaching peace. You're telling us judgment's coming. You need to go home. We're going to listen to everyone else that's preaching peace. And never go to the Lord and go, Lord, I got 12 guys preaching peace, but I got this one guy over here. He's telling me that I'm under the wrath of God. I don't want to dismiss the one. I want to be willing to listen. So please, deal with my heart and show me. That's what we've got to be willing to do, right? The Lord says, you assume the Lord, because again, he's speaking to Jeremiah in verse 6, I have listened and heard. Okay, of course, God is omniscient. This is metaphorical language to help us understand that God knows. I've listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I 
done. No one was willing to say that. Now, I'll give you another picture of depravity. At what point was Job willing to say that? Where was he when he said that? Yeah, where was he at the time? He was in the belly, in the bottom of the sea. Jonah. I said Job. That's why you're always looking at me. You're like, what are you talking about? Thank you. Jonah. At what point was Jonah willing to say, what have I done? And that's the picture. That's unfortunately, that's where we've got to be to ask that question. Um, so stubborn, so stout hearted continuing his rebellion against the Lord until the Lord brought him to his senses in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. And he was willing to look at his life and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm not doing right, right? So this is kind of the picture here where the Lord says, I've listened to them, I've heard. They've spoken what is not right. No one has repented. No one, no man has repented of his wickedness saying, what have I done? And of course, we're, we're New Testament Christians. We understand the gospel around here. Until you're willing to ask that question, you can't understand the grace of God. Until you get to the place where you examine your heart and see your sinfulness, you don't understand the good news of the message. You might be willing to pray. You might be willing to lift a hand. But until you're absolutely broken about the sin in your life, you don't understand the message. You have to understand the wickedness in your own heart. Everyone turned to his course. And then he gives, uh, which he often does, uh, things out of nature as metaphors to help us understand. Everyone has turned to his own course is, is like the horse charging into battle. Once the horse is excited and sees where he's headed, he's not going to stop. And he continues to charge into the battle charging into harm's way. He has no concept of what he's running toward. Okay? So everyone has turned to his course like a horse charging into battle. And then he gives a couple of other illustrations from nature. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. The turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. It's a picture of stupidity. Animals know when to turn. They know their designated times and places without being instructed. They just know. But he's like, these people, they don't know. They have no idea that it's time to turn around and come back to the Lord. So that kind of ends, that's one section. If you want to draw a line, that's one section to consider. It shifts a little bit and it runs deeper. Notice in verse 8, here comes another question. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? So what are they basing their wisdom on? What are they boasting in? having the law. Read verse 9 and tell me what's most important. Finish out 8. Read verse 9 and notice God comes right back to the question. Well, God questions what they've said.
Do they have wisdom? None. Why? They've rejected God's word. They thought wisdom was based on possession. Wisdom's not based on possession. Wisdom's based on possessing and obeying. It is the application of the truth, not simply possessing the truth. And this is one of the reasons why they thought they weren't going off into apostasy because of what they possessed. We're Jerusalem. We have the law of God. How could we ever be going the wrong way? Steve said it was interesting in Russia because his right out of seminary, um, he was stationed in Russia, Novosibirsk, I think it was. Um, it was cold. Uh, they talked about it one time freezing inside their apartment. I mean, snowing one time inside their apartment. Uh, but anyway, he said many of them felt like their interpretations of particular things were right because they had survived persecution. And many of the fathers had suffered persecution and they had come through that and they had survived that. So they were under the impression that they were, because of their experience, the things that they did and the ways they interpreted things were right. And so Steve got in trouble a few times when he would faithfully interpret scripture and he even got disciplined one time and told him, you're not preaching for the next several weeks. I mean, they just refused to hear. Didn't matter what he would expound from the scriptures. They were like, no, we're right about that. We have this experience. We have this possession, so to speak, in our lives, and therefore it justifies our actions. So here they are as a people of God walking through this and going, you know, we have this, and so therefore we're right. There's nothing wrong with us. We got this one guy telling us to turn around. Got these other guys telling us we're just fine. We're going to side with them because we possess this. So the Lord asked the question, how in the world can you say you're wise? To which they would respond, the law of the Lord is with us, right? And God would go on, no, no, behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, the last part of verse 9. What kind of wisdom do they have? So we're Americans. How many Bibles do you have in your house? Oh, man. We have a lot. Right. But you need to understand that it makes you even more morally culpable. Right. Um, it's not the having it. It's the obeying it. Cody posted a quote that he came across 10 years ago now. I forget exactly the quote he posted this week. But basically, we know a whole lot more than we obey. Isn't that right? Yeah, we're more educated more in the, in the scriptures than what we obey. Don't be fascinated with education. It's not going to do you any good unless, of course, you obey. And if it takes you learning less in order to obey more, by all means, obey more and learn less. Because until it's applied, it's not wisdom. Could this be like today? Oh, I'm a believer. And then James would go, well, show me it by your works. Oh, yeah. There's, there's lots of instances, 8, 9, 10 like that. Yeah. Oh, I believe. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons he brings up Jerusalem in verse 5. Why then has this people Jerusalem? That's meant to catch you. Because they're going to say, we have the temple of the Lord. We're the temple of the Lord. Right? There's, a, there's one that really hits you hard in here somewhere if I don't uh, lose my thought by the time we get to it. So he uses this unusual phrase in verse 8, Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie in reference to the word of God. And there's a lot of discussion about interpretation. How have they made the word of God into a lie? I don't think that's the point. I think if you read on in verse 9, it explains the lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? They haven't written down. And see, during Josiah's time, he found the book of the law. 
so not everybody has this. And, and he made the comment that scribes were probably busy at work copying the law that they had found, distributing copies. And some suggest that they were changing what they were writing, but I don't think that's at all. The lie is you're not living it. That's the lie. You listen to it. You have a copy of it, but you don't live it. Your life is a lie, right? What, what use is having the word of God if you're not going to obey it, right? So I think that I don't think there's any difficulty there in interpretation. I think it's simply answered in verse 9. You, you've rejected wisdom. Verse 10 is judgment. Therefore, because you won't get yourself up off the ground, I'll give their wives to others and their fields to new owners. He, he, he expounds on the judgment later on, but there's a phrase there and he, keep, he picks it back up. Because from the least even to the greatest, which is a phrase of covering everybody. And then he just says it. Everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone practices deceit. Now he's going to expound on deceit a lot here in a minute. Verse 11 is something I found most interesting, though, that I want us to settle down with for just a little bit. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So let me ask you this. What is their brokenness? Because that's an unusual word. That's not a word that I would have used. But God's speaking through Jeremiah the prophet, so it doesn't matter what I would use. I just find that word out of place. What is the brokenness of the people? Let me ask it in two different ways. What is their perceived brokenness? And what is their real brokenness? How about that? just read some things, so you should know their real brokenness. Okay, that's their legit brokenness, right? They've rejected God's word. They're walking in apostasy. What do you think their perceived brokenness is when you consider the message that was being preached to them? If somebody's preaching peace, what's the fear? There's about to not be peace, right? So which issue did the false prophets address, which is denoted by the phrase, they treat my people superficially? They're trying to make them feel better, but they're not touching their genuine brokenness. I want you to see that. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially. There's a real brokenness and there is a perceived brokenness. The perceived brokenness is there's the sound of war coming. There's actually a prophet saying that they're coming from the north. So these other prophets over here are addressing one or two situations. Are we going to deal with their genuine brokenness, which is their idolatry and the rebellion against God's word, are we going to deal with their perceived brokenness? Well, I want to deal with what they say their struggle is, and they have a fear that judgment's coming, so I'm just going to preach peace. I'm going to bring comfort. I'm going to console them in what they think is wrong and tell them nothing's wrong. Of course, we know the end of the story, right? They didn't touch what was truly wrong. Let me take you back to that commercial. He gets us. Are we touching what is truly wrong with man 
are we trying to comfort man in what man thinks is wrong? You think about a lot of preaching that goes on at big churches. It's felt needs. I know you're sad. Today I want to talk about sadness. I know you struggle with depression. Today I want to talk about depression. I know that, you, you know, your marriage, your job. I want to talk about those things that you come in here with your perceived brokenness that you just want to get fixed in your life. So I want to comfort you. I want to coddle you. And by and large, the church has gone in that direction. But that's perceived. There's a reason those things are taking place in your life. And it's the genuine brokenness that needs to be addressed. I don't need to put a Band-Aid on what you're telling me is wrong with your life. I need to deal with the heart issue of what's wrong with you. And what's wrong with you is you need to get up and turn around and come back to God. But nobody wants to hear that. These people did not want to hear that. And so what takes place from most pulpits is superficially addressing perceived brokenness and nobody is dealing with what is truly wrong in calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. Boy, that's a sleight of hand, isn't it? That's so deceiving that we would comfort and console and preach peace when there is none. You think about the message for the church today. Let me just go ahead and jump there. What would we say today? We wouldn't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We wouldn't say, I have the law, I have the law. What would we say? I would, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what we would say. And the message of comfort would follow. But when you read it from beginning to end, even the Apostle Paul preaching to the churches, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to get up. It's a call to turn around. It's a call to stop doing what you're doing and come to Christ and follow Christ. You look at the book of Hebrews, right? Those four hard warnings about whether or not you're truly in Christ, right? That's not comforting. That is terrifying. In fact, he concludes that way. The terrifying expectation of falling into the hands of a God like that. That's what? Hebrews 12? 13? So that's how he winds it up. There's no comfort in that message. There's a warning in that message. And so what's going on today, by and large in the church, is just superficially bandaging the wounds of what is perceived to be painful. And what is being ignored is the open rebellion to the Word of God and they're not calling them to repentance and faith. And it's such a sleight of hand because there's one thing your heart prefers is to be comforted. Just tell me I'm going to be okay. And we even use Jesus to do that. They were using the temple of the Lord. I mean, they were in Jerusalem and they would go, there's the temple of the Lord. Do you really think somebody's going to run God off? I mean, come on. To which they would all laugh. No, no, nobody's going to do anything with the one who created the heavens and the earth. Okay, then you people just need to go home and sleep well. God is telling you, you're going to be fine. He's there. You've taken care of the temple. You go in there on the Sabbath and you offer sacrifice. You've placated and appeased the God of the heavens. I know you're worshiping other gods, but he, listen, he's placated. You don't worry about life. You're going to be fine. That was the message. And so I think rather than saying temple, we would say Jesus. We've got Jesus. We've got Jesus. We've got Jesus. We're fine. Just comfort me in my sinful living. And you're not going to find much of that in the word when you're living that way. Again, verse 11. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially preaching are saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Then here comes another question. Were they ashamed because of the abomination that they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. Again, we, we've talked about this before, but 
how you deal with unrepentant sin in your life, you should give some thought to, right? You ought to be ashamed. Therefore, back to the judgment, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they will be brought down, says the Lord. And then he enters into a pretty lengthy section about judgment. And I'll just read through this. I don't think... I got a couple of questions, not many. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaf will wither. What I have given them will pass away. And then here's a question about who is speaking. This is one of those moments that's difficult. Why are we sitting still? Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities and let us perish there. Because the Lord our God has doomed us and given us poisoned water to drink. For we have sinned against the Lord. We waited for peace, but no good came. We waited for the time of healing, but behold, terror. From Dan, which is the most northern part, is heard the snorting of his horses. At the sound of the neighing of his stallions, the whole land quakes. They've come to devour the land in its fullness, the city and its inhabitants. For behold, I am sending serpents against you, which is just, I think, probably a metaphor. I'm sending serpents against you, adders for which there is no charm, for they will bite you, declares the Lord. I don't, there's discussion about whether or not that was physical adders because you know he did that um, during uh, the trip from Egypt to the promised land, but more than likely it's the people that he's bringing against them from the north. But, you know, the only thing to give thought there is you've got to figure out who's speaking if you spend time with that. And it may have well been Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the people, what the people should be saying, rather. Why are we sitting still? Judgment's coming, right? That sort of thing. Now, another interesting thing, who begins to speak in verse 18? My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? And then here comes a question that we need to examine. Why have they provoked me with their graven images and with their foreign idols? In other words, they were asking the question, why is all this happening? Is the Lord not in Jerusalem? Is Jerusalem's king not dwelling within her? To which God responds, if that's true, then why are the foreign idols in Jerusalem too? Which brings us to something you and I really need to consider. If we're the people who have professed allegiance to the king and we pray waiting for the kingdom to come, why does so much of our lives look like the world? Because that's the same question he's asking. If you're saying we don't have anything to fear, the king is in Zion, he's in Jerusalem. Well, if I'm in Jerusalem, what's the deal with all the idols in Jerusalem? Why would you bring idols, false gods, into Jerusalem if you're trusting in the fact that God dwells in Jerusalem? Right? And so when you and I consider that, that's the same question. If we're people of the kingdom of heaven, why, does, why, why do our lives look so much like the world, which is the kingdom of the world? That's a great question. If we profess to follow Christ, why do we spend so much time following the world? If we profess to have the character of Christ, why does so many times we find ourselves out of character? I know that's certainly not bandaging your wound superficially, but I do want you to give it some thought. That's a part of that woundedness I was talking about Wednesday night. If the church, let's keep going, if the church is where people gather to worship God according to the Word of God, then why does so much that goes on in the church come right out of the world? 
if the pulpit is reserved singularly for the proclamation of the Word of God, why is so much said from the pulpit that has nothing to do with the Word of God? A lot of great questions here. A lot of things to think about that the Lord challenges them on. It's one of those times where He catches you and you didn't realize you were about to be caught. They were literally saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord will be fine. And the Lord's like, okay. Then why are so many idols in the temple? Right? We literally say we're the church of God. Okay. Then there's some things we ought to be able to assume. Everything that takes place within there should reflect this. Everything that takes place within the lives of its people should in a growing way reflect this. And when they find themselves not reflecting the truth of this, what should they do? Pick themselves up. Turn around. Repent. Go back. Right? It's simple logic. Right? And the Lord's caught them in their own thinking. Harvest is past, verse 20. Summer is ended. We are not saved. And by the way, I, didn't tell you, I think this is just Jeremiah. The lament has already started, so to speak. It's going to take off in verse, or chapter 9. Harvest is past, summer is ended, we are not saved. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn, dismay has taken hold of me. And this is a really good, thoughtful thing in verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Now, if you do a little background study, Gilead is where they actually produced salve or balms that were uh, medicines. So we asked the question, did Gilead stop producing medicine? Like, nope. No, it's everywhere. I mean, they had, I think, the trees that they used, the sap of the trees to make the, the medicine and the balms and those particular things. He says, well, is there no physician in Gilead? Well, sure, there is. There's plenty of physicians and doctors down in Gilead because that's what they do down there, right? They've got plenty of people that know how and when to apply the salve to the particular wounds. They've got all that wisdom. Okay, then, here's your question then. Why then has the health of my people not been restored? If that's true, then why are they still sick? That should bring us right to the gospel. Because there's no way to heal the brokenness of the people because they're broke of heart. And the only way to heal that is to give them a new heart through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, for me, the most gospel question that I've found so far as we walk through Jeremiah. The only thing that's going to fix the people is if the people are born again. There's nothing else that can help them. Okay? Yeah, which brings us back to the worst part of depravity. You don't even know you're sick. Which is the biggest problem that I have with how people present the gospel today, especially to kids. They have to understand their need. They have to know they're sick. If they don't understand... the depth of their sickness as best they can, why do they even need a doctor? Right? If they don't know the despair of their situation, they have no need to look for someone to help. Right? 22 is one of my favorite ones. Because I see the whole world, like that's my realm, right? I've got people coming in all the time. Taking medicine for everything. And a lot of them, you just want to sit down and have a conversation. I'm sure you're depressed. You, I think about the things going on in your life, anybody, anybody would be depressed. You can take medicine for that if you want. Or you can go after the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I say that carefully because there are circumstances, Don't throw everybody on that bus. There are medical circumstances, but you do realize for many people they're not medical, they're spiritual. 
I'm thankful for uh, Abby worked for Dr. Hodges and Abby said we were in a particular situation. Somebody had come and she was working with the patient and Abby kept thinking, man, you just need Jesus. You just need Jesus. And Andrew walked in and listened to her talk for a while and he said, ma'am, your problem's not physical, it's spiritual. And he shared the gospel with her. And I thank the Lord that he's got men like that. But that's the case with many people, many people. The problem's not physical. The problem is a spiritual issue. And medicines and balm from Gilead's not going to fix that. You desperately need Christ. And so they did in verse 22. Comments before we move into the lament? Questions about anything in chapter 8? Man, you've got a lot to talk, think about. I think about verse 11 a lot. I think about verse 19 a lot. I think about that first section quite a bit as well. I think about verse 8. Chapter 8 is really good. Very thoughtful. And any time you get through a series of questions, you've got a lot to think about. So are we looking at verse 11? Yes. They're not accepting. Yeah, so at this point you think there's actually fear yeah. there and then they're pacifying. Yeah, yeah. I think they hear things, particularly from Jeremiah. They don't know what to do with that. And the false prophets are saying, you don't do anything with that. The guy's crazy. Don't worry about that. And this is potentially part of Jeremiah where it's just not linear. It's just kind of like... A yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you don't know what timeline because when you get down in verse 16... From Dan has heard the snorting of his horses. You assume it's coming down. But again, I think Jeremiah is still speaking of the future. I don't think they're there yet. But obviously they're close because chapter 9 is the lament. Which I was talking to John today. He said, where are you going to be tonight, Dan? Jeremiah. He said, give me a quick summary. And one of the cool things or one of the most interesting things about Jeremiah that if you're an elder or a pastor, you really need to consider is he is preaching... And the Lord's already told them, you know, nobody's going to listen to you. Some of the most difficult people you could ever preach to, they completely reject him. They're going to imprison and beat him, and he can't stop crying over them. And you're like, well, why are you crying over these people? And he's like, these are my people. I love them. Man. So, yeah, I pray that God would give me a heart of compassion for y'all often. <laughs> because I know who I am. I need compassion. And so I pray that the Lord gives me compassion for you. And y'all are not even a difficult people, right? Y'all are an easy people. He's preaching to a tough crowd. He's preaching to um, the megachurch Christians who want to be, they want 30 minutes of encouragement. They want exciting and entertaining music. And they want to call it good for the week and go back home and live their lives how they want to live their lives. That's who he's preaching to. And they're not listening at all. Right? And he keeps crying and crying and crying and crying because they won't listen. He's, he's an absolutely amazing prophet. So yeah, nine is for the, the elders here. Notice what he says. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That's amazing. That's amazing. But then he also realizes where he lives. Verse 2, Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them, exclamation point, for all of them are adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. He's like, you know, I, there are times where I'd just like to go to the beach. I, I just had a little cottage off in the woods to get away from these people that I live amongst and that I preach to just so I can just be alone for a while. That's kind of verse two. 
I think the Lord, I think Jeremiah was one and two. Again, it's difficult, but I think the Lord picks up in verse three. I think Jeremiah and the Lord are having a conversation. The Lord says about them, they bend their tongue like a bow. And now he's about to take off with lies and deceit. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. They go or they proceed from sin to sin or from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. And then here comes a warning. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Don't trust any brother because every brother deals craftily and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. So you're assuming that the Lord's telling Jeremiah, be careful, dude. You're not around people you can trust. Okay. Everyone, verse 5, speaks deceit or deceives his neighbor. They do not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to lie. That's fascinating. That's evil upon evil, right? They've taught their tongue to lie. You know, there are some cultures, and I won't name them because I forget them. I'll stick my foot in my mouth. There are some cultures, it's a very commonplace thing to lie. It's just socially acceptable. People just expect you're not telling the truth, which is not our culture, right? Lies are still frowned upon. And it should never be an easy thing for a Christian. But this is the part of the, the degradation of culture. If you don't follow God, you fall into untruth of all sorts. You swim in it. And so he tells Jeremiah, dude, you're swimming in this. You need to be careful because nobody's going to tell you the truth about the thing. Right. But to follow the Lord is to speak truth. Second part of verse five, they weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling, again, it seems as though the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Okay? So the whole culture, because it has walked away from the Lord, has walked into lie upon lie until they swim in the midst of deceit. Now, what takes place in 7 through 11 is the Lord, and it's like He's allowing us into His mind. But again, you have to be careful with things like this. This is poetic expression to help us understand what God is doing and why He's doing it. So let me read 7 through 11 quickly. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them, which is interesting. That's a word of hope. I will assay them, or assay them, for what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? It's like God is working through his mind about passing judgment on his own people. Verse 10, for the mountains I will take up a weeping and a wailing, which is also interesting for the Lord to say. For the pastures of the wilderness a dirge, because they laid waste so that no one passes through. The lowing of the cattle is not heard. The birds of the sky and the beast have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. And so when you go back and look that the Lord is weeping and wailing, what's He weeping and wailing over? Destruction of the people or the land? It's the land. He's weeping because the mountains will have to endure and the wilderness will have to endure and the animals will have to endure the judgment that's about to fall upon the people. So the Lord is concerned about creation there, which is fascinating. Not surprising, I just mentioned that as fascinating. But He's chosen to severely punish His people. Now, back to a few questions in 12, but still we're in the, the category of lament. Who is the wise man that may understand this? Who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined? So we just, we were weeping over the land. So he asked the question, why is the land ruined? Why, why lay waste like a desert 
so that nobody can even pass through it? He answers the question. Because, the Lord said, they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They've not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their own hearts, one, and after idolatry or after the bells as their fathers taught them. So in other words, the land is ruined because the people have rejected the word of God and done two things. They've walked after their own wisdom and they walked after idols of the people. Therefore, judgment, right? So here's the question for us. Where is it in our lives? The question is not if, the question is where. Where is it in our lives that we trust in our own wisdom, follow culture, I'll use culture rather than idols because we're about to lay that foundation. Where is it that we walk according to our own thinking, follow the culture around us, and walk in disobedience to what we know clearly to be the way of Christ? That's something to think about. That's something to think about in your own life. I can't answer that question. But that's the whole issue. I mean, everything that we read falls on 13 and 14. That is the entirety of the issue. That's the summary, right? Of course, we understand what the gospel is, right? The gospel is to give you a new heart. And what does he write on that heart? His word. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit is the one that produces obedience to the Word in your life, right? And so it's plainly evident. You can say Jesus all you want, but the real question is, have you been born again? Does the Spirit dwell within you? That's the question. Um, it's interesting. I was riding through town the other day. I told Sarah this Thursday. Evidently, there's, there's a new um, Church of Christ that's gotten on a local radio station. I didn't have to listen long before I knew it was the Church of Christ because he's putting all emphasis on baptism. He quoted a few passages and he goes on to put emphasis on baptism for salvation. He even read a passage without reading the next passage. Like If you read the next verse, you'll clear up what you just read. But he put the emphasis on baptism for salvation. But we've done no better. We've put emphasis on words for salvation. He puts emphasis on baptism for salvation. We put emphasis on words for salvation. Repeat after me. Where does the emphasis fall? The emphasis falls on the Spirit of God. The emphasis falls on not what you and I can do. The emphasis falls on what God does when He brings a man to saving faith. And you cannot have an encounter with the living God and come out the same. You come out Born again, born anew. You're a new creature, a new creation in Christ. It, and the emphasis therefore falls on Him. So when we read passages like this, because they have forsaken my word, you ought to ask the question, wait a minute. That should not be possible for me without repentance, right? It's not possible for me to go after my own wisdom and follow the culture around me without bringing me to repentance because I'm not the kind of person that would fall down and not get up because the spirit of life and the spirit of Christ dwells within me, right? So that's where the emphasis falls on what God has done. And what God has done is evident. It's evident because of 13 and 14, right? Verse 16, let's see. I'm sorry, verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Now here comes the mourners. This is interesting. It goes 17 through 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women. You've got to understand this is a weird part of their culture. They had women they would hire to mourn at funerals or at any other sad events. And they were good at it. I read some of the. I was like, wow. They, they went all out as far as mourning. And one commentator said, 
loud wailing and crying were a part of the culture. That part that makes me nervous. And I, 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 I often find myself at a loss of words when you go to the hospital and they're just screaming because all you want to do is just hold them until they just settle down and hush, right? It's, it's not anything any of us ever want to be around. That was just part of their culture. Just out of control wailing. And so God says, you need to call them. Consider and call for the mourning women and they may come. Send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined or how are we ruined? We are put to great shame for we have left the land because they have cast down our dwelling. Now hear the word of the Lord, O you women. Let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. There's not going to be enough of you. You're going to have to teach your daughters how to do this. Teach everyone, in fact, her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up through our windows. It has entered into our palaces to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the squares. Speak, thus says the Lord. The corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheep sheaf after the reaper, but no one will gather them. There's going to be so many of them. It's just going to be like filth on the ground and nobody's going to gather them. So you need to call the women that mourn because it's about to be a terrible time. Now, I told you when we started 23, 24, 25, 26 is like the most important section of, of chapter 9. You do need to give it some thought. In fact, keep your finger there and go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I found that fascinating. I'm starting to find connections between Jeremiah and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Once you mark that, then you can go back to Jeremiah. And I'll read 9.23. All right, you ready? Verse 23 of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. There's one thing. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Two things. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Three things. So when you look at the things that the world trusts in, there's your list. That is without question the most complete list that you're going to find. We trust in our wisdom. We trust in our strength. And we trust in our wealth. If we've got any three of those, we have confidence in things where confidence has no business being placed. Wisdom, might, and riches. And Jeremiah says, oh, don't, don't, don't even go there. Now, what's fascinating is Paul really should have probably cited this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, number one, according to the flesh, not many mighty, number two, not many noble or of wealth, number three. See, again, I'm finding connections between what Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and what's going on in Jeremiah. So you can't dismiss Jeremiah as Old Testament, old covenant prophets that have no place. Paul's like, I can use what Jeremiah said in his day to the church in the new covenant in my day. Because the people trusted in these things rather than trusting in their knowledge of God. We'll find the church at Corinth was very arrogant. So go back to Jeremiah now. Good question for yourself. 
Is there any way in, in your life in which you're trusting in those things? Wisdom, strength, or wealth? Verse 24, But rather instead, let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, by the way. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And notice their knowledge of God is personal. It's a, it's a salvific sort of knowledge. That the Lord who exercises loving kindness, that's the chesed word, justice and righteousness. Those attributes of God that one would know if one truly knew God. That God is full of loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. But not only is God full of that, notice what he says after that, I delight in these things. These are the things that God wants in his people. So again, if the Spirit of God dwells within us, we would have this sort of love within our life, this sort of faithfulness to God. We would be passionate about justice and we would be passionate about righteousness. Those qualities of God we certainly know if we truly know God. Verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon and Moab, and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped the hair on their temples... That should be offensive. That's something they did that the Jews would never do. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Verse 26 is a slap in the face. They do something that would have horribly offended the Jewish people and they did it in their temples. And God says they're uncircumcised. Of course they do that. And the Jews are like, yeah, they're disgusting. And then God says... But in your circumcision, you're uncircumcised of heart. The judgment that will fall upon them is the judgment that's going to fall upon you. And of course, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 2, right? Circumcision is inward and of the heart by the Spirit. It's not the outward sign. All right, 15 after. I can stop. I can go. What do y'all want to do? Is it like this morning we can draw those lines in different places and we all have to accept one another and go on? <laughs> Let me outline it for you. Ah, oh, there's really good things in here. I want you to consider verse 2. Here the house of Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations. Now I'm drawing a line, and I'm comfortable with this line, between idolatry and the way of the nations. Idolatry and culture. I'm ready to draw an equal sign there in my theology. Okay? He warns them, do not learn the way of the nations. Look at verse 3. For the customs of the people are delusion. Now here's what the particular way he wants to address, and it's the issue of astrology. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. Stop looking at... And you got... Pre, Hagee, John Hagee used to do this all the time. You got all these charismatic leaders looking for blood moons and signs in the heavens and all this... God's like, don't even. Don't even. That's embarrassing for my people. Don't, 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 don't. Don't be mystical. It's not a mystical issue. It's just clear. I have my word. You're supposed to obey it. That's not hard. So quit living in mysticism. He talks about their gods. There's four things about their gods, starting in verse 4. Uh, notice that the last part of verse 4. They will totter. They can't stand up. Notice verse 5, they cannot speak. That's number 2. Verse 3, they must be carried. Or number 3, they must be carried. Verse 5, I'm sorry. And then finally, number 4, at the end of verse 5, they can't do anything. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. So here's their gods. 
They can't stand up, they can't speak, they can't walk, they have to be carried, and they can't even do anything bad or good. Which is interesting because God is mocked. God, the one who created the heavens and earth, is mocking the other gods and going, you have to carry your God around? That's fascinating. That's kind of embarrassing. You have to carry your God when it's our God who carries us. Lots of other things to read. I will, uh, this is also fascinating. Look at verse 11. Circle verse 11 if you're making notes in the Bible. And uh, I'll leave it with this. Maybe we'll pick it back up. Maybe we won't. Verse 11 is the only verse in the book of Jeremiah written in a different language. This one is written in Aramaic because almost everybody could have read that language. It wasn't in Hebrew. Look at what it says. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from the heavens. So there's a little bit of symmetry going on there. They did not make the heavens and the earth, so they're going to perish from the earth and from the heavens. And Jeremiah says that in a language that would have been common for even the godless nations. It's pretty cool. A little bit of evangelism there. All right, we'll stop.